Welcome to the CAA podcast. My name is Ariana Chaiwarinan, and I'm here today with colleagues across the Pacific, Kenji and Tanavi. We will be speaking today about the way that recent protests in Bangkok, Thailand have influenced visual culture and the role of artists in those protests. Hi, good morning there, Ariana. My name is Kenji, or Chanon Prapipat Mungkon. I'm a curator currently at the Singapore Art Museum. So I'm calling in from Singapore. It's bright and early here today. But I previously was doing quite a bit of research on how Thai artists were staking claim to autonomy in the 1970s amidst questions of royalism and censorship. So very happy to be talking here today about the protests that are happening right now. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tanawi Chodpradit. I am a lecturer of art history, specializing in modern and contemporary art in Thailand and teaching at Silavakon University in Bangkok. And I am also a member of an editorial collective of a journal called Southeast of Now, Contemporary and Modern Art in Asia. So I've been following the Thai politics since 2006 and see how Thai artists engage with the situation. So I'm very happy to be here talking to you today about what's going on with the Thai art scene and also the political situation. Thank you both so much. So today I will be addressing this question of what role contemporary artists are playing in Bangkok's protests in 2020 and what role Thai artists have played in shaping visual culture of these recent protests and to what extent Thai artists and protesters are looking to appeal to an American or a global audience. And then finally, we'll end by speaking about the role of historical memory and Bangkok's monuments in the contemporary protests. So just a little bit of context about protests going on in Bangkok right now that have been escalating over the summer. There is a real distinction in the current reign of King Bajiradong Korn from his father Bumikon. And the populations in Bangkok have been speaking out against government corruption, looking to advocate for democracy, and unlike before, have been advocating openly against the king and for a curtailment of the monarchy's power. So this is rather unprecedented in recent times. And the reason this is so uncommon is that Thailand has strict list majeste laws in which it is criminal to defame, insult, or threaten the king, queen, heir apparent, or regent. That is punishable by 15 years in prison. This gets into interesting territory with art because the interpretation of defamation is rather blurry. Creatives have been imprisoned for fictional kinds of satire that are interpreted as defamation. So I'm wondering, Kenji, if you could provide us a little bit of historical context for what's going on today. Yeah, so I think, Ariana, you're already raising this point about the way that artistic expression is very closely bound up with the limits that are set up in terms of speech and expression related to the less majesty law. And we can really step back and ask, you know, what, what is the royalist visual culture that these creative producers 
have been intervening in. If you have visited Bangkok or Thailand before, you'll see that the official portrait of the monarch and the royal family is kind of this sort of baseline that you see happening everywhere, right? On billboards, in people's homes, and it's almost a sense of cultic worship of the monarchy. But this wasn't always the case, because if we go back in time a little bit. 1932 was an important year in Thai history. This marked the moment when the People's Party, so a group of citizens, mainly elites, tried to overthrow absolute monarchy in order to constitute a new regime that was based on constitutionalism. And 1932 really marked a change in terms of how the People's Party tried to take away this idea of the image of the king as a sovereign, with the intent of cultivating other kinds of political symbolism, like the Pan Rathathamunun, or this platter upon which the constitution is being served. And so, thinking back about this longer history, you'll see that there were moments in time when the king and The image of the king did not have so much power. So, for instance, the United States Information Service conducted this survey in rural Thailand in the mid 1950s, and the majority of respondents reported not even knowing the name of the current king, let alone having seen his image. And this idea seems so unthinkable today, given almost the universality of this image. And it was only with the return and encouragement of Dictators like Sarit Thanerat, that Rama the Ninth was able to kind of recultivate this aura as a demigod and father figure of the people, and this was happening from the late 1950s onwards, especially through mass media, through radio and television, that was instrumental not only in promoting the image of the king on the national stage, but also show the monarchy as part of what might be thought of as a moment of global royalism. That the Thai Jakri monarchy was mingling with luminaries like the Pallavis of Iran or the Marcoses of the Philippines. So this is just to give a context of how less majesty today is considered such a serious offense because it presents this threat to a really long-standing royalist political theology that's been cultivated over the past several decades. Thank you for that context, Kenji. And I'm wondering how do artists navigate this blurry line or definition of less majeste? Um, it seems that artists are still having exhibitions of political art. So to go back to you know this moment in the 1960s and 70s, the the question of the relationship between creative expression and the monarchy was not always one of kind of straightforward antagonism. Right? In fact, during the 1960s, when the king became first involved in officiating the national art exhibitions and competition, I think there was a sense of hopefulness on the king's own part that art would kind of hold open a space of. Autonomy that you know he even submitted his own paintings in the sense that you know this was an arena for himself to creatively express himself in a way that might not be normally expected of a head of state. But royal patronage, of course, had incredible effects on the arts. That you know young artists protested, say for instance, the nineteen sixty four national competition as a rigged event because the first prize was given to a work that the king had previously purchased. 
you can see the sense of artists who are beginning to intervene in this sphere really coming out in the 1970s when you know student protesters in 1973 took to the streets to protest against military dictatorship, producing you know different kinds of political posters, banners, and and billboards. There was this real moment of artists, say the United Artists Front of Thailand, growing out of the 1970s, who were not just fighting against the dictatorship per se, but this bigger structure of feudalism and this sense of elitism that characterizes Thai politics. I think there's a few distinctions to be drawn between the political protests of the 1970s versus the ones today, because I think the 1970s artists' movements were very much framed in explicitly leftist terms or even communist terms, whereas the ones today have had much more intersectionality with issues of, you know, say, gender and sexuality and these other identitarian concerns. And also another point to note is that many of these progressive artists, activists in the 1970s eventually became royalists or became much more conservative later on. So there is a difficulty, say, in tracing a direct lineage or line of influence between moments of radicalism in the past and the ones in the present. Tanabi, I know that you have studied contemporary Thai art, and I'm wondering if you can add anything to Kenji's point about this difference between the 1970s and the contemporary moment. From what I learned, many artists of the 70s, some of them even fled to the forest with other student protesters after the clash at the 6th October massacre at Tamasak University, where the protesters were accused of being communists. So some artists even admit that they were more or less communists and fled from, from the capital. But these artists, many of them, after they came out of the forest, some of them went to study in the States and became artists. They became kind of establishment in the 90s and they have been known internationally as critical political artists outspoken of the situation in Thailand, especially criticizing politicians. But the problem arises when these artists came to the 2000s with the protest against Thaksin Shinawatra, who was the prime minister with the populist policy and especially the poor like him very much, but not the elite. When Thaksin was toppled down by the military coup in 2006, these artists that people would have expected to say something, to criticize the coup, to criticize the military, but they actually did not do, which was quite surprising, considering their role in the 70s. Then from the period from 2006 to 2010 or 11, these senior artists didn't really work in support of the anti-coup movement. Therefore, at that time, it was quite quiet in the Thai art scene. But there were some Thai activists. Some of them had a foundation in theater. And they would do something like creative expression or activities as part of the protest. While 
Thai artists didn't do the job. There were also some young Thai artists, not from the 70s generation, who tried to make something or to support the anti-coup protester in other words, they are, they are the red shirts. But they were the very minority of the art people. I experienced one time that I work with a photographer called Gongret Jian Pinit Nan. We did a collaboration between him and a performer, Pichet Glan Chun, at 100 Ton Son Gallery. Gongret was supposed to make an installation like a house for Pichet to perform inside it. And the performance was about Thai ancient literature, but somehow connect to the current political conflict on the wall of the house that Concrete made. He sprayed black paint as a question, is the blood of the poor worthless? And at that time, the gallery owner couldn't take it. After a series of negotiations, we could only twist the wall. Uh, we didn't erase the question, but the wall turned to the other side of uh, facing the gallery wall, so no audience would see what concrete actually spray on the wall. And that is one of the few questions of Thai artists trying to resist the mood of the middle class in Bangkok at that time. So a few months after that, the Red Church movement was cracked down by the military forces in Bangkok and there were several art exhibitions and huge projects celebrating the return of Bangkok to peace. But now, in 2020, there were so many young artists who were children at that time became curious about what happened in the past or why did their parents or why did their school took them to the protest by the anti-democracy movement, the movement we call PDRC movement that prevent the election in 2014, which obviously resulted in another coup that remained until now in a form of military government. The artists of the 70s who became famous in the 90s, they didn't really engage in politics supporting democracy movement. But on the other hand, they support the military coup. But if you ask them, they would say their version is also a support of democracy. And that's debatable. That's another thing. But some interesting point is that we don't need those artists to be the sole voice of democracy in the Thai art world anymore because there are more people, younger generation, who grow up with curiosity and they are really willing to engage. So in the early 2000s, there were not many of these artists. But after the second coup in 2014, these artists who already grew up start making artwork inside and outside the protest, challenging both the military and monarchy. Now, during the protest, every time they have a corner for art people, they organize the movement called Free Art or Silapa Pot Act to allow artists of every type, like performers, singer, graffiti artists, visual artists, writers, etc., etc., to work together in the protest. 
and they would occupy a space in the protest and do some artwork that support the protest demands. For example, the main theme of the protest was the reform of the monarchy. But there are some other concerns raised by protesters, like LGBT issues, labor rights, student rights, economic problems. So the monarchy is the main theme, the reform. There are some other issues. Even high schoolers would come to talk about their problem. And art play as part of visual communication to visualize all these concerns or demands into something catchy, into something Instagrammable, I would say. So basically, it's not just about the monarchy because people are already realized that it is actually every corner of the Thai society that needs reform. And that's why art became so various inside the protest even though the monarchy and the military are the main thing. Tanabi, you've spoken about how the protesters or other young artists are really innovating with tactics. And there was a protest at the police station in Bangkok on August 28th, where someone threw paint at the police. And there was a debate ongoing about whether this gesture actually was art or whether it was too violent. Older generational folks were sensitive to this kind of retaliation of the protesters. However, this kind of throwing of a paint can is not the same as throwing bullets. Of course, they're radically different in terms of the scales of violence. I'm wondering if you might be able to speak more to this, Tanavi, that idea of throwing paint and other sort of gestures that protesters have been engaging in. To me, the throwing paints at the police station on that day is, of course, an act of violence. But we need to talk about the level of violence, like how much is too violent, how much could we do in the protest, and how much someone could try within the context of the protest. Well, on that day, there was a singer who participated in the protest and he threw blue paint to the police and it sparked a debate among the people and among the protesters themselves. But throwing has become commonly practiced and well-organized, more like a creative expression. For example, at the protest at Sanam Luang on the 19th September and in Kongan province on the 27th September, that very same singer who initiated throwing paint in protest organized a place where people can come and throw paint to a picture of the politicians, of the military figures. So it happens as very fast action at the protest almost without thinking. But of course, he thought about it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had a bucket of blue paint with him at the beginning. It became part of the protest that other people kind of accept the way he did and they follow, they copy. It happened many times after that, not even in Bangkok. So the question of whether this is art or not, I don't think it is really relevant because, well, you can say it's art because he's a singer. He's also a type of artist. He used paint, that's his art material and all of that. And it could be art in the protest, but it can also be just an action inside the protest, throwing paint to the symbol of the institution policeman in that uniform. 
I think as Tanavi mentioned, the question of whether if it's art or not seems less relevant to the protesters actually than you know the critics and commentators who come out to talk about these gestures afterwards. There were a number of these. Public intellectual figures who were posting on Facebook in the aftermath, trying to compare these kind of guerrilla-style actions to an Euro-American art historical precedents. So, for instance, to American action painting or to Banksy. And the point of generating these comparisons was almost to put down. The Thai protesters and saying, "Hey, look at all these artists abroad who are doing these gestures of artistic protest that are much more beautiful or thoughtful or considered." And you can see here the way that the question of is it art or is this art historical is being used towards rather conservative ends. It's trying to police and ask, "Is this good art or not?" When in fact, the intention is trying to sidestep that kind of aesthetic judgment. That comparison to Banksy feels very apt, insofar as Banksy as a figure has received a lot of criticism for appropriating forms from street art and street culture in the gallery format. And I know in Bangkok, currently young artists have also started to understand the ways in which siloing work or acts of a performance or resistance into a gallery can be counterproductive. Tanabi, you have spoken about how political subjects are becoming a trend among young Thai artists, but also that showing political works in the gallery is seen as actually less helpful to the protests than making art that is in the protests and for the protests. That there's a new kind of currency in the art scene, which is perhaps at its worst, a sort of virtue signaling, whereby those who are actually contributing substantively to the protests are more respected. But of course, that this work is also the work that is doing the heavy lifting, and these questions of whether this is art or not may become actually less relevant to the political movement. Tanabi, you also. Speak about defending the artist's freedom to make work in their own way. That it's not that we can only have work in the gallery or outside of the gallery in protest, but that we need to really be defending a kind of freedom of expression. That that is more broadly what these protests are about. This kind of progressive message has to live beyond just protests or just gallery contexts in sustainable venues. And that protest as a format, perhaps in being ephemeral, requires a longer-term attitudinal change that might be normalized through institutions and cultural venues. But that the two really go hand in hand, and that to combat or provide alternative visions to royalist imagery, which is everywhere in Bangkok, that you would really require broad movement. An organization across visual platforms, thinking about how Thai creative practitioners are transforming visual culture. I'm wondering what role have Thai artists been playing in shaping visual culture of the recent protests? We've seen in Hong Kong that. There's really a sense that artists are involved with the production of symbols, signage, and ephemera from these protests. Whereas in Bangkok, protesters are sort of appropriating the lowest common denominator of global cultural symbols, including milk tea, aspects of internet culture, the Hunger Games, Harry Potter. 
we were earlier speaking about how royal visual culture has become widespread and pervasive in Thailand. And I wonder if this also maybe speaks to a little bit of the strength of using pop images in protests. The way that these images are disseminated throughout society means that once activists and protesters are able to appropriate them, all of a sudden these ubiquitous images can take on a double meaning of resistance and that there's no single owner of pop imagery in the cultural imaginary. So in the context of Thailand's royal-dominated visual culture, I wonder if the appropriation of pop can be a way to puncture that iconography of that royal visual culture with a more collectivist spirit, a communally owned, distributed network of images. This brings up the recent translation of Hito Styles core image by a Thai online collective. This is Soy Squad on Facebook. They've been working to translate a series of Styles essays. I'm wondering, Kenji, if you might be able to speak to how this trope of the poor image might intersect with current protests and the use of this pop cultural imagery. I think, you know, in terms of how protesters have been using images in, in this recent protest, as, as Tanavi mentioned, this is a much younger generation of protesters who really grew up seeing the events of 2006, 2010, 2014, and are thinking about the ways that the popular culture that they consume intersect with what is going on in Thailand, really using popular culture symbols and using media like Twitter and Facebook in order to circulate their messages and images. There is also a sense to me that the interest in new media is kind of this recurrent theme or trope in histories of protests and revolution that, you know, whenever you read about protests or revolution has been historicized, media pops up as a key term. Thinking back, say, to 1992, when there was also a big protest movement in Bangkok, that the protesters then were very much championing, you know, the technology of mobile phones and pagers as what allowed them to kind of coordinate from the ground up. So I think that, you know, that there is a relevance to thinking about this idea of Hito Stero's poor image. But at the end of the day, we must also acknowledge the fact that the protesters this time around belong to Thailand's most educated generation yet. And, and that a lot of these protesters do hail from a middle class background where they are able to have fluency in the use of imagery in this way. But maybe, Tanavi, you could speak a little bit about how you've been seeing the young protesters use images. I think it's about both a generational gap and the ideological ground of people. We can see that royalist imageries all over the countries, in every channel they have 24 hours a day, seven days a week, is one kind of pop. But... In the protest, the using pop imagery from global pop culture is another kind of pop. So there are two pops clashing with each other, I would say. And that has to do with the generation, with the technology that people use, with the ideologies that people hold. Definitely, I would agree that the use of pop imagery from global pop culture, from the not-so-high status, the pop images from Hollywood, from Japanese and Korean manga animations and all of that, 
could be one of the ways to loosen the sense of nationalism that could solidify in the image of the royal, which are still all over the country, but compared to the previous range, not so popular or not as popular as before. So I think the protest, which on the one hand responds to another protest outside the country using pop images, it's something globalized, not unique just for Thai, but part of this globalizing movement of the young people. But on the other hand, it perfectly attacked the other type of pop, the Thai pop, using the image of the monarchy. And at some point in the protest, the royalist imagery were challenged. Someone put a sticker with the word Gu cult. Gu means I. At the eyes of the current king on his huge picture at Sanam Luang. And that's a challenge directly towards the Thai pop from the memes from the internet that come outside. I think that's really important, that sense of a bifurcation of two distinct image cultures almost, because you get the royalist image culture that has a pretty narrow affective range. You know, it's about decorum and respectability, and there are rituals associated to it that, you know, really consolidate this sense of respect. Whereas this kind of broadening engagement with popular culture, a lot of times it is humorous, it is ironic, it's trying to be fabulous, it's trying to be slapstick. And this really opens up the room for different kinds of emotional responses and investments. And perhaps this comes out most clearly in the side of protesters who are particularly vocal about LGBTQ rights. The kinds of events they organize, you know, using a rainbow flag as a catwalk or performing in drag. And so I think it is not just about kind of challenging an image regime, but also kind of broadening the idea of what kinds of images are acceptable in in public discourse. I love that idea of broadening not only the sort of types of images that can be possible, but also reaching towards broader audiences. Tanavi, you spoke about this idea of appealing to a global context of imagery with these internationally resonant images. I wonder if you might speak to whether there are elements of spectacle being incorporated into these protests, as Kenji brought up, this fabulousness, the idea of a catwalk. How does that spectacle factor into an attempt to appeal or not appeal to a broader audience? It does attempt to appeal the broader audience. Besides these fabulous images, costume and all of that Instagrammable things, a lot of protesters use English languages in their protests. They would show the sign with a word or a sentence in English because they were aware that they're speaking not just to Thai people, but to people outside too. So two things, the image and the language they use and the awareness of technological devices they use that would enable them to communicate with the world. I think they really need to make people outside Thailand understand what's going on. Maybe for many reasons, for safety could be one of the reasons. If you think about the police following the student protesters 
to their dormitories. And they would have their friends using a camera on their mobile phone, recording anything, even recording them face of the followers or doing live broadcasts when they are arrested. And all of that is for the spectacle, which at the end would probably protect them from being forced to disappear or put into jail. So it is necessary to be seen and to be seen with the spectacular features would help them a lot. On the other hand, it's visual communication. I think young people understand that it's not going to be interesting if they just stand up and read something long or show only the image that only Thai people would understand or get. But it's necessary for them to make it internationally recognizable. And that's also one of the areas that art could engage. That is so interesting, Tanavi, because I'm thinking about this idea of visibility. And you spoke just now about how this hyper-visibility or a kind of global bearing witness to the Thai protest provides protesters with safety. And in Of Art and Absurdity, you spoke about almost an inverse relationship where some artists are able to fly under the radar and evade detection or censorship because they use obscure symbols. For example, you write, quote, the reason for the ability of the visual arts to escape military attention might be its abstruse nature, its conceptual approaches to political topics, which make it difficult for both the general public and government officials to read and decode political content. So I, I'm seeing this kind of, this other side to this visibility where either hypervisibility or invisibility might protect artists. You also write about Papun Sok Laor's Far From Home series, and that is a series of paintings of mountain landscapes where Thai nationals have escaped to avoid state capture. Those paintings formally echo American modernists such as Ed Ruscher, John Baldessari, but the series in kind of evoking these larger traditions of landscape painting or modernism evades that kind of censorship because to a lay person or perhaps to a government official, it would just appear to be landscape painting. Could you talk more about Laor's influences there, Tanavi, and where that series was coming from? For Poponsak's landscape painting, I think one interesting thing about art is that because this is visual and it relies so much on the visual experience of the viewer, you tend to find similarity between the work that you are seeing now and something that you have seen in the past. And maybe the question whether this one had influence from another one or not would happen which is quite common and art historians are trained to do that, you know, to find patterns in the past. But sometimes the similarities in appearance is just a coincidence. We can talk about the pop imagery in the protest that we can trace the source to Hunger Games, the Hollywood themes, or the Hamtaro Japanese anime. But in some things like art, sometimes 
he doesn't have any reference from the works of another artist, especially Western artists at this period. Poponsak case is an example. He initiated those landscape paintings because he was inspired from the story of one of the Thai exiles when he was crossing the mountain and the border from Thailand to Laos. And now that person, his name is Somsak Jiam Chiraskun, he's a history lecturer, lives in France. And he wrote a short memoir about that moment. I was walking for a very long time crossing the mountain. And that inspired Poponsak to make a series of mountains in the countries where the Thais in exile have been living in. So it is sometimes that there is no reference from inside the art world, but it's from outside. We have to be more careful about comparing images, especially images that we think we are so familiar with, because it's sometimes not the case. In thinking about this kind of lineage of images or a history of images, I'm wondering if we might think about the role of monuments in Bangkok as prior to now semi-permanent fixtures in the landscape of the city that similar to the placement of portraits of the king around the city might shape visual culture and memory in the city. And in the United States, protests have centered in part around Confederate monuments and the racist histories that they reify and instantiate. And I wonder, Tanavi, if you might speak to the role of Bangkok's monuments and memorials in the protests. Well, I think memory has a very important role in the protest. Memory is one of the main themes other than the monarchy, but it's actually because it involved the People's Party who overthrew their absolute monarchy system from the very beginning. So it began after 2006. It was about 2008 or nine, if I remember correctly, that the protester, the Red Shirt, began using monuments and memorials built during the People's Party periods as their sites of protest and that make a connection between the current protest, the Red Shirt, and the People's Party. That it sent a message that the Red Shirt was a kind of ideological children to the People's Party and that they would continue the task from 1932 by protesting against the coup and the unelected prime minister, which to them means undemocratic. So the monuments became a symbol of the People's Parties at the very beginning, but meanings have been added by the current protest and it linked from the past to the present. In the 2020 protest, monuments still play a crucial role because before that, the state's already aware the crucial importance of these monuments for the protesters. So they began removing the monument from Bangkok and also from other provinces. For example, in Lopuri, the statues of two People Party's members were removed from the military camp. It was quite simple that, okay, people gather at the monument, so we remove the monument. Therefore, they don't have any place to gather with political symbol. 
but it's not easy as that because people began to be curious about these monuments. They research, they read, they produce texts, they produce images, and it was all over the internet. Imagine the people's party flag from the ground of the Royal Plaza is not a monument that was very outstanding. It was just a flag on the ground. Car ran over it every day. Nobody knows about it except for those who's really, really into politics. But once it disappears, it's all over in the form of reproduction, memes, or live archives where everyone can make and share and connect. So it's still relevant to monument, but the actual monument, the physical one, the authentic one, even though it's disappeared, it can be replaced with many other things. They also make another flag on 20 September. The protester made a new flag in response to the actual People's Party flag, but different motif on the flag. They have this three-finger symbol on the flag and they imitated the sacred ceremony cursing anyone who tried to remove the flag. It was quite real but if you really listen to the chanting you would know that it wasn't real. It's a mockery. Within 24 hours the flag disappeared from Sanam Luang but nobody cared because it's not real from the beginning but the new flag reincarnates in any form and stickers, all of that. It's different from the state monument in the sense that anyone can produce it. You don't need to ask permission from anyone to do it. People distribute the file and you can take it to do whatever you want, which is the same thing with some books that the military don't want people to read. In the past, you would close down the library, you burn the library, you burn the book, and that's a form of censorship that prevents people from knowing something that they're not supposed to know. But now you take the book, people just distribute PDF files. You cannot stop them. I think there's quite a few exceptional things going on with regards to monuments. To give a little bit of context as well, I think that the dialogue that's been going on in North America and Western Europe has mostly been about whether the state or artists or you know people should be removing these older monuments that were built in the name of, say, colonialism or racism. But I think that the Thai case, it's important to note the distinction that you know when we're talking about monuments here, it is monuments to the people's revolution. So these are kind of monuments that commemorate flashes of democratic willpower and and that these were being removed or disappeared by unknown parties. And so the case of memory and monuments right now, I think, is about how is it that younger people and artists and protesters are trying to sidestep the sacredness or authenticity of monuments and are much more interested in creating new kinds of reproductions and rituals and performances that allow for the monument to have other kinds of meanings beyond the one circumscribed meaning. And you can see this in the way that the files have been shared and now there's birthday cakes of, you know, the People's Party plaque and things like that that really take it into 
a realm that's not only just unexpected, but you know, if if we're gonna talk about counter monuments and how meaning is created from below, I think this is a really good example of that happening in real time. Thank you so much, Kenji and Tanavi. You're making me think of Spencer Finch's 9/11 memorial, trying to remember the color of the sky on September 11th that morning, because. You're speaking sort of about the way that people's memory can persist and take on its own life and live beyond state-sanctioned construction, and that something as unwieldy as a populace as democracy cannot actually be controlled and formalized in something as insignificant as uh, you know a single plaque or its removal. And in Spencer Finch's monument, the work itself is ephemeral. It's made up of 3,000 hand-painted paper squares that approximate different individuals' memory of the color of the sky. This memorial in capturing a kind of ephemeral moment and being made of an ephemeral material, it proposes that our act of constant remembering and collecting is the way to honor and carry forward history. In 2020, on opposite sides of the world, we are really bearing witness to the ways in which history is not linear. We are actively forging and reforging imaginative futures with each other and with a kind of urgency from uncertainty. I want to thank you both so much for forging this story and future with me. Thank you so much.